Hello, people of the world, and welcome to today's episode of the Unity Project podcast. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, the Unity Project podcast is one about the relationships that we have with our bodies. Today's episode is going to be quite a bit different than normal because I'm actually not interviewing anybody, but I'm actually just posting a speech that I gave to a camp called Ryla just a couple months ago. As some of you might know, uh, one of my one of my passions is being a public speaker, and I, oh man, I love it so much, and I have had the opportunity to speak at this camp called Ryla, which is hosted by different Rotary districts across the country. This specific one is put on by District 5330 in Southern California. I love doing this, and I am so excited about the chance to put my speech on my podcast, so if anyone out there wants to hear it, they can. Also... If anyone out there is interested in booking me for one of their events, whether it's for their school, a club, a camp, you name it, feel free to send me an email to Jackie at JackieGronlin.com. I'll put all of that in the description box of the podcast to make it easier. And yeah, I hope you guys enjoy. time for our next speaker. Today we have Jackie G. She is an author, speaker, and podcast host from Colorado with an online platform of nearly 40,000. Jackie published two books focusing on authenticity, trauma, recovery, and self-acceptance. She started her career creating self-reflective videos on YouTube and transitioned to hosting the Unity Project podcast to facilitate deeper conversations about embodiment. She currently lives in St. Louis with her partner Kaylee and their two very opinionated dogs. Please give it up for Miss Jackie. Hey guys, what's going on? <laughs> well, as she so kindly introduced me, my name is Jackie. Uh, what's your name? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, one more time. Ethan? How's it going, Ethan? That's really great. I also heard someone say Taylor Swift. Did someone say Taylor Swift? Okay, I got you. Well, if Taylor Swift is out there, this is a big deal for me, so hopefully I do a good job. Is anyone out there, does anyone out there have any siblings? So everybody has a sibling. I love it. I love it. How about, is anyone out there a little brother or a little sister? Ooh. Okay, we've got a lot. We're like, we're like a team here. <laughs> it's a hard thing being a little sibling, right? Yeah, yeah. So has anyone out there, this is an important question, you guys. Has anyone out there played any pranks on your sibling? Oh, this is so much more than last year. <laughs> okay, does anyone want to share? Okay, this is much less. Okay, how about you? What's your, what's your prank? Hold on, hold on. Can I pull the mic up to you? Okay, I got you. This is important. So, so my brother is an avid gamer, and he has a gaming chair upstairs. So I hid his PC, 
And then on top of that, I unscrewed some screws in his chair. So when he, so when he sat on his chair, he thought he broke it. And he's like, how did I break it? Because I just bought it. And I'm just laughing in the corner because I know I took the screws out for him to fall on his butt. Dude, you're my idol. <laughs> That's awesome. Also, I want a PC if anyone wants to give me one. Um, <laughs> That's very cool. That's much cooler than what I used to do. So, see, so what I'm about to tell you is true and real. It all happened. One time. One time. Now this is less cool, and now I feel less cool sharing it. But one time I put shaving cream in my sister's shampoo. Oh, right. Yeah. That sounds cooler than it is because nothing happened. She didn't even notice. But I got away with it. Did you get away with yours? Okay, cool, cool. I feel like we get each other. <laughs> so another time though, another time, this is also real and true. Another time, I put a dead moth un <laughs> under my sister's blanket before she went to bed. Yeah, yeah, so cool, right? She didn't notice that either. It's fine. I felt good for a minute. I still got away with it, obviously, because nothing happened. But I am living to tell the tale. I'm going to start sharing your story. Is that okay? Okay. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, so anyway, my, my favorite thing I used to do, though, the thing that helped me out the most was I used to steal, well, air, big air quotes here, I used to borrow my big sister's clothes because she shopped at all the cool places. Like, I don't know if you guys still shop at these places. It's been a minute since I was in high school. Do you guys still shop at Hollister? Oh, wow, cool. How about Abercrombie? Maybe they, did, did they ever go away or did they make a comeback? Maybe they've just been cool. Yeah, so my sister shopped at those stores. I wasn't allowed to. My mom was still shopping for me and picking out my clothes, and that was whatever. But I wanted to look cool. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to impress everybody, which is what we do. Uh, so what I would do is I would take my sister's clothes. I would wait for her to leave for school, because she would leave before me. I would put her clothes in my backpack, put on whatever outfit my mom thought was cool, and then I would go about my merry way, and the second I was out of sight, I would hop a fence, quick outfit change, and go to school. And I was so cool, you guys. Picture me like this, but like my shirt said Hollister, which makes all the difference, right? It's all in the logo. Yeah, so my sister, she was, she was very, very cool. She was who I was compared to for my entire, entire growing up. Still sometimes today, not as much, which is cool, but she... She was who I was compared to by my parents, by my friends, my classmates, my teachers, my coaches, because she was the grade A student. She had all A's. She was starting, starting varsity in all the sports when she was a freshman in high school, and so I had a lot to live up to. Do you guys know what that's like? Yeah, I see a lot of nods. Thank you. Now I feel less crazy up here. Uh, so I had a lot to live up to, and she kind of became my like measuring stick, if you will, my like standard for how to be what's good enough, how to be accepted and cool, whether it came down to what I wore, Hollister, or what I ate, how much I ate, or uh, how funny I was. I thought I have to be as pretty as her, as funny as her, as smart as her. I have to get straight A's. I have to be starting varsity, which... I wasn't. You guys, I got benched so much because, and I quote, I fell too much. 
for no reason. I just collapsed. I honestly, <laughs> I'll tell you later. But that's just how it was. And so I realized that what I needed to do was I needed to really study my sister, figure out what is she doing that is making her so accepted, so good enough. And I found that there were a lot of rules that she was following. And I'm not talking about rules like don't cheat, don't lie, don't steal, like yeah, don't do all those things, etc. But also, there were these rules like don't be too much, be small, don't be too annoying, don't be too loud, don't, don't eat too much, stay skinny, uh, things like that, things like that. Staying small was the biggest deal. And I tried to follow these rules, I tried to go along and do the thing because like I'm sure a lot of you have experienced, like we wanna fit in, we wanna feel good enough, we wanna be accepted. Whether or not we know that's what we're wanting, that's really what we're wanting. So as I got a little bit older, I found that the rules started to change. I, I started working at this place called Texas Roadhouse. Has anyone been there? I always get this reaction about Texas Roadhouse, and it always surprises me. I didn't know it was such a popular place. The rolls, the honey cinnamon butter, right? Yeah, you know what I mean. Do you guys ever throw the peanut shells on the floor? Cool. They did? Oh, thank God. Oh, my God. I was the one who had to sweep those things up. Yeah, yeah, now you know what I'm talking about. So, Texas Roadhouse was all fine and dandy, the rolls, but... <laughs> I started to meet a lot of friends there, and we were getting a little older. I was about pretty much your age at this point, 16, 17, around that age, and the rules were a little bit different. They started shifting from like doing good in school to we're partying, we're going out, we're drinking, we're doing drugs, we're doing this and that and that, and I thought, okay, this is, these are the new rules, these are the, the new things that I have to do to be good enough to be accepted. And so I kept trying and trying, and, and people, people seemed to like it, so I just kept going, and that's what I was doing in order to be accepted. And so then one day I made this friend, and she was a little bit older than me, and she decided she wanted to be like my big sister. She wanted to like take me under her wing, which I thought was cool, because I was used to having kind of like a big sister to look up to, to try to be like, to try to gain acceptance from, and so it felt like a good comfort spot to me. So we started doing everything together, and I trusted her, and it was like we were the whole two peas in a pod type of thing. I don't know if people say that anymore, but I do. That was us. And so then she started dating this guy. <laughs> oh, raise your hand if you've ever been a third wheel. <laughs> I knew it. If you're not raising your hand, please tell me your secrets and how you do life later. So she started dating this guy, and at first I was like third wheeling, just like we talked about, but eventually we started to become like this little family. We started to really be this like little unit. And so her boyfriend, just like she called herself my big sister, he started to call himself my big brother. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and so we became this little family. We did everything together now, and it was like I finally had this little bubble of love and trust and acceptance that I thought I needed and that I had been really chasing my whole life. Like, I thought I had it. Like, I finally have it. And so then one night, 
Uh, so, so her boyfriend, he was a little bit older than us. He was in his 20s. I was still 17. And uh, since he was in his 20s, he would go out and do things that people in their 20s do. And so one night, he asked me if I would be his designated driver home from a bar one night. And so I was 17. I hadn't been in a bar yet, but I was like, okay, I'll be the awkward kid in the corner <laughs> with like her backpack on from school. Um, yeah. And so I decided, okay, yeah, I'll go. I'll go to the bar with you. I'll be your designated driver because I care about you. You're my big brother. And so we get there around 10 a.m. Or no, no, no. Wow. <laughs> Not 10 a.m. <laughs> yeah, we went hard, guys. You don't even know. <laughs> we get there around 10 p.m. A little less cool, whatever. 10 p.m. And uh, he goes and he does his thing. And I go and I sit like the awkward kid. You can probably picture it happening. And he goes, and I don't see him again until around closing time, which I think it was like 2 a.m. So I don't see him again. And closing time happens, and we meet up. And he's just gone. He is just probably the drunkest I had ever seen anybody at that point in time. And he was acting a little bit different. And I was like, OK, it's fine. I trust him. He trusts me. He kept calling me his little sister, like his little sis, like over and over and over again. And so we're driving home. And he decides he needs to stop at uh, Walmart to get something to drink, to get like a, a bottle of water or something. And so we go into Walmart. And we do what it is you do in Walmart. And then we leave. And we go back out to the car. And so we're standing in the parking lot, and we're at the car, and he opens up the back door. And that night, uh, my, my, my best friend's boyfriend, my big brother, he raped me. <sighs> so you guys, a common misconception about sexual assault is that it happens like in dark alleys where the victim doesn't know the abuser, and it's like, yes, that does happen because this is a scary world. But the sad thing is that eight out of 10 times, there's already a level of trust built between the victim and the abuser. There's already, they know each other. And that's how it was for me. This was my big brother. This was my, my, like, my family at this point. This was who I like, created my little like, bubble of trust with. And when someone who you trust that much does something like that to you, it breaks something that just feels impossible to put back together. Like it breaks something that was never meant to be touched. Like it changes you. And so I drove home that night at about 4 a.m. I go upstairs to my bathroom, I look in the mirror, and I do not recognize the person that I see staring back at me. She looks like a stranger, she looks like a ghost, like this hollow, this hollow person, this shell. She just, she didn't belong to me anymore. And so I, I take off my, my clothes and I look at them and it's like, they don't belong to me anymore either. So I just throw them away. And I could have sworn that I fell asleep on the bathroom floor, but I woke up on the couch downstairs. And I woke up to, uh, to a phone call from him. And to this day, standing up here at 28 years old, I think it's been 
11 years since math, I don't know. Uh, I have a very, very different opinion about what he said on the phone. You see, when, when he called me, he claimed, to, he claimed to not have any idea what had happened. And standing here now, I call a big bullshit. Like, but at 17 years old, I believed him, and I felt like the only, I felt so alone, I felt like the only person in the whole entire world who knew what had just happened to me. And you see, it's hard because, you see, remember, there was that level of trust there built. And so right now, 11 years later, it's easy for me to know that was bad. He was a bad, he was a bad guy. That was bad. But at the time, I'm 17. He's my big brother. That trust doesn't go away like that. Like, it takes, it takes a lot of work. And so I believed him, and I wanted to believe him. And so I hung up the phone and I remember just like sliding my back. You know how in the movies when someone's upset and they like slide their back down the wall and they like hold their legs? It felt like that. Like I was like holding myself so I wouldn't fall apart. Like I needed to hold myself physically together. And I panicked. And so I'm like, okay, I, I need to talk about this. I need, to, I need to tell my best friend. Because my best friend, like she was my person, remember? Like she was also my like my family, my person that I trusted, et cetera, et cetera. Like I needed to tell her what had happened. And it takes me a couple weeks to really build up the courage to be able to say any kind of anything out loud. And I call her on the phone and as it's ringing, I'm just like scared out of my mind. And I didn't know why because I was like, she's my best friend. We tell each other everything. What I didn't know was what I was doing by telling her this was I was putting her in the position to have to choose. She was going to choose between uh, her best friend and her boyfriend. But what she was really choosing was she was choosing between me and the man who raped me. So... I was afraid that she wasn't going to choose me because I, at that point in time, did not believe that I was worth being chosen. And she proved me right. She proved me right. She gave me evidence to believe that. She made it seem like it was the truth. I'm just not worth it. So she hung up the phone and she stayed with the guy and she never, she never talked to me again. So I was responded to in a variety of ways when trying to ask for help with this. And the world makes it really, really hard to ask for help, to say when something happened to you, especially in this area. It feels like we're just set up for failure, right? So I was responded to by people who are like, are supposed to be the people that take care of you, people like your parents. Like those are the people that are supposed to like protect you and care about you. But the way I was responded to was people said things like, well, how much were you drinking? What were you wearing? Uh, are you making this up? Like, are you doing this for attention? You're making yourself a two-time victim. And the worst was when someone looked at me and he said, how do you expect me to just love you right now? And so for anyone out there who has been through anything like this and has tried to ask for help, you'll know that sometimes the responses that we get to something like that has the power to be just as traumatic, just as gut-wrenching as the actual assault. It's like, it's like you get hit by a car 
You're like lying, bleeding out in the street, and you're trying to get someone to help you. And the people who are supposed to, they just get in their cars and they just run over you again. Like it feels like you're just laying in the street, getting run over, over and over and over again. And so I was like, okay, fine. I'm gonna go back to following the rules. I'm gonna go back to do, remember the rules we were talking about earlier? Yeah, so I was gonna go back and I was gonna put a mask on that was gonna be just what was okay and what was accepted and what was good enough, which meant I was gonna be really small, I was gonna be really unemotional, I was gonna not cry, not ask for help, not really need anything. Do you guys know what I'm talking about with rules like that? Is there any rules that I'm not listing that you guys like feel really strongly about? Okay, well, I guess I got them all covered. So these rules, I decided I'm gonna follow these rules, and I did. And I found that drinking, drinking was something that was really helpful before when it comes to fitting in, making friends. But at this point in time, drinking kind of became something that helped me make friends to something that just helped me survive, just helped me get to the next day. So I got really into that. I got really into that. If there was any kind of social event activity, any kind of like group hang or whatever that involved drinking, I was gonna be there. And if there was any kind of like group hang or whatever that didn't involve drinking, I was gonna be there, but I was gonna gonna bring the alcohol. Like I was gonna make sure it happened because I could not sit with myself sober. Because sober me, sober me was not capable of pretending like nothing happened. I, sober me wasn't capable of shoving it down and just being the happy-go-lucky girl who was fine and doesn't need anything. And so another thing that was really helpful on top of drinking was I, I really, I just stopped eating because I remembered the rule about staying small and I had gone back and forth about following that rule in my life, but at this point in time, I was in like, I know now I was in survival mode and I needed every possible strategy I could to disappear because I could not, I just couldn't be there. So I'd stop eating. I'd cut out this food group or that food group until there was like one thing that I was allowed to eat and it was like iceberg lettuce type of thing. And this just became a cycle. And I was like running away from real me. Like that was my monster. I was like on this hamster wheel, just running away from like the actual version of who I was. Until it just became too much. All of a sudden, it just became too much and all I wanted to do was not exist anymore. And I got really scared one night because I really hit this point where I was home and I was by myself and nothing was working anymore and all I could think about was wanting to take my own life. That's all I could think about. And so I get home and I start Googling things and I start searching for different ideas, different ways, different things I could do to do that, to take my own life, just so I had ideas in my back pocket if I needed it because I found that I was spending a lot more time wishing that I wasn't here than thinking about anything else. So I don't really know how I got the courage to do this, you guys, but I started, going, I started going to therapy because that really scared me. Therapy is, side note, therapy is awesome. 
if you have a good therapist, but that's a different conversation. But we love therapy. Therapy's great. Therapy helps you. Anyway, different conversation. I started going to therapy, and it became really helpful to kind of have someone just consistently show up for me. And I was really bad at therapy because you don't just one day start being able to talk about your feelings. Like I had gone the most of my life just being this like person who shut it all down, who did everything in my power to shut it all down. But going into therapy, you're supposed to talk about your feelings. I didn't do that. My therapist would be like, hi, Jackie, how, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And I would be like, I'm totally fine. How are you doing? What did you do last weekend? Talk to me about TV shows you like, stuff like that. Therapists don't like that very much. But you see, my therapist, she was really patient with me. She saw through that. She saw, she saw that as a, as a strategy of mine, as a way for me to get to the next day. Just like drinking was a strategy, just like not eating was a strategy, wearing this mask, it was a strategy. She saw me as someone who was trying to, trying to survive the moment to get to tomorrow. And one day I decided, I just, I didn't want to be alone in it anymore. I didn't want to be alone. I wanted another human being to know what was going on. But saying the words out loud still felt impossible. Saying it, sometimes like, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, but when I feel like really, really, really anxious or depressed or just reliving something, I can't talk. It's like the words just stop. It's like there's all of a sudden rocks in my throat and I can't speak. And that's what happened. So I decided I'm going to write it all down. I'm going to write it all down. So I took a piece of paper and a pencil and I wrote, I wrote about drinking and I wrote about my eating disorder and I wrote about depression and anxiety and wanting to take my own life. I wrote it all out and I handed her the piece of paper and she read it. And she looked at me and she said, Jackie, how would you feel about pausing life for a while? About just taking, just taking a break? And I immediately thought, are we going on vacation? Is it Disneyland? Should I bring a swimsuit? The beach? What's going on? No, 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 no. She said, not vacation, Jackie. I'm talking about uh, treatment. I'm talking about treatment, rehab, treatment. And she told me, she was talking about treatment for people with eating disorders, for people with addiction, depression, like that kind of place, like this facility. And immediately I was like, no, 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 no. This is me we're talking about. I'm fine, obviously. I'm fine. And she's like, no, you're not. <laughs> So I start to tell her, I'm like, no, if I go somewhere like that, that's going to mean that everything that happened to me is this big, bad thing. That's going to mean it, it's all big and real. It's going to make it real. It's going to make it so I can't run away and hide from it anymore. And she said, Jackie, it is big and it is real. Like, it is. And she told me, now, this, this is what got me. This is what got me. She said... Jackie, imagine a world where you don't have to hide who you are. Imagine a world where your insides could actually like match who you are on the outside. Where if you are feeling this 
pain, this agony, you are allowed to express it and people will still be there. If you're feeling happy, cool, you get to be happy. If you're feeling sad, cool, you get to be sad, but you get to be one person. You can stop running away from who you actually are. And that sounded really different, very different, and I, it sounded good. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna try it. Okay, I'm gonna go to treatment. I'm gonna give it two weeks, two weeks tops. And I really meant that, you guys. I brought one pair of pants, and for how long I was actually there, that's gross. So I showed up there, and man, this was like a world I had never experienced before. I walked in, and I, there were so many rules. I wasn't allowed to flush my own toilet. I had to go to the bathroom with the door cracked open with someone waiting right on the other side. And I had to come out and be like, I'm done. And then they would go in there and flush it. That sucks, right? Yeah, yeah. So that was treatment. And when I walk in there, I look at everybody and I realize that all these people are strangers. But the second they saw me in this building, they knew my deepest, darkest secret. The second they saw me, they knew about my eating disorder. They knew about my depression, about my addiction, about all this stuff. And the reason is, is because they were there too. They were dealing with it, dealing with it too. I felt so exposed. I felt like I had worked so hard for so long to hide all of that, to shove all of that down. And the second I walked in there, it's like some curtain just like, hey, guess what? Look at this, look at me, look at all my secrets. That was horrible. So I did what I do. Uh, I was really original and I put my mask back on and I was like, okay, no, I am going to prove them all wrong. I don't have a problem. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm happy, I'm fine. I'm gonna get through this. But the thing is that treatment, everything was taken away from me that I used outside of treatment to wear my mask, to pretend everything was fine. In treatment, we weren't allowed to drink, obviously. We weren't allowed to not eat. Like in treatment, six times a day, we had to sit around this table for three meals and three snacks with a staff member, and we had to eat this meal that was put in front of us. And if we didn't eat it, we had to drink this meal replacement drink, and if we didn't drink that, we'd have to write about all of our feelings about why. We had to. So we weren't allowed to use our eating disorder. We weren't allowed to go running six or seven miles right after, you know. We weren't allowed to do any of that. And so I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it. I started to fall apart. I couldn't wear my mask anymore, and I freaked out, so I ran to the admission lady's office and I banged on her door and I said, discharge me right now. Give me my keys. I wanna go home. This is not for me. Get me out of here right now. And she, <laughs> she was like, uh, what's your name? <laughs> and so I start to just tell this lady who knows nothing about me, like, I need to leave. This isn't for me. There's no possible way for anybody to heal in an environment like this. It's not possible. I'm fine, I need to go home, I need to go back to what I was doing, this isn't for me. 
And she said, now she was real hard ass, and I think I needed that. Sometimes you just need that, kind of that like slap in the face, like get it together. And she told me, she said, Jackie, if you're not gonna, if you can't heal in an environment like this, where this whole building is filled with people here to support you, the aisles, the hallways, they're drowning with therapists. Like we had to go to four therapy sessions and like three dietitian appointments every week. And when we burned in those, we were in support group after support group after meal, which is basically a support group. And it's just like feelings, 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 feelings. And everyone there is talking about the same stuff and dealing with the same stuff. And so she said, if you can't heal in an environment like this, when recovery and healing is your only job, what makes you think you are going to be able to heal back home without that? Back home where you are just going to hide again and you're just going to go do the same things you've always been doing because that wasn't working. If you leave here and you discharge, it's just going to be the same thing. And I think I needed that slap in the face. And so I stayed. I said, okay, okay, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try. Like I waved my little white flag. I'm going to try. And what was really interesting was... I started to kind of let my walls go down a little bit, just a little bit, just a teensy little bit. I started to talk about my feelings. I started to answer people more honestly. And the second I did, people started to come closer. People started to, to become my, my friends in a way that I felt like I hadn't experienced since I was like a kid, since before the world started throwing all these rules in my face. And it's so crazy, you guys, because like 10, 11 years ago, I don't even know. I, I was a camper like you over a decade ago. I was where you are. And at the last day of camp, they had me, well, they asked if we wanted to come up on stage and share what our favorite thing about camp was. And I did. And what I said, I remember, well, first what I did was I knocked myself in the tooth with the microphone and it hurt. That was my first time public speaking. <laughs> it was great. So I'm doing better now, guys, right? Yeah. Thank you. Cool, cool, cool. I'm, I'm better than that now. So I, I went up on stage, and I said that over the past three days, I had made better friends here at Ryla than I had made in the three years of high school. Three days, guys. Three days at Ryla, and I made better friends than I had in three years in high school. And the reason for that was the same exact reason that people started to come closer to me when I started opening up in treatment. And it's because of the conversations that we're having, because this is a place where we're talking about our stuff. This is a place where we have staff members checking in with us, asking how we're feeling, where we're supporting each other, where we're getting up on stage like last night in the culture walk and sharing these things and finding out that we're not alone. That's what, that's what it was like. And so four months later, four months, not two weeks, four months, one pair of pants. It wasn't these ones, don't worry, I've gotten new pants. Uh, four months later, I get to discharge from treatment. And there were three really, really big, important things that's just, I held on to, and I'm gonna share that 
with you guys, okay? So if you get anything from any of the gibberish I'm saying, it should be these three things. So the first one is that recovery, just like life, recovery is not linear. It is not a straight line. It is not step by step, now we're here. It's like zigzags and jumping jacks and you're falling down, just like I used to do, which is why I got benched. Um, you're falling down, you're getting up, you're going 10 steps forward, five steps to the side. It's all over the place. It is not a step-by-step -step formula process. My recovery, my life looks so much different than your life or your life and yours all looks different. And it's like we have our own journeys that we're on. But the point and the hope is that we keep going, we keep trying. And the second thing, the second thing I learned is that it was never about the food. It was never about drinking. It was never about any of that stuff. What it was about was connection. And it was connection with each other. Sorry, I have like a Diet Coke or something. I'm like, ah. give me one second. Talk amongst yourselves. Okay, that's enough. That's enough. Stop talking. I'm serious. <laughs> so, uh, what? So it wasn't about connection with each other, but it was about connection with ourselves, connection with our own bodies. And what I found is that our bodies, they're really wise. Like our bodies know what we need. And I spent so long trying to run from my body, trying to ignore my body, ignore myself, ignore the truth. The second I started listening, the second I realized like, oh my God, like if you're hungry, that's your body telling you to eat. If you're tired, that's your body telling you to rest. Like if you feel like you've taken on too many things, and your body starts like breaking down, like maybe you get sick because you've been committing to too many things, or maybe you, I don't know, get anxious because of this or that. Like your body is smart and it is telling you what you need. You see, my favorite thing my therapist ever told me was that I have everything I need already. She is just there to walk me through it. And at the time I was like, that's stupid. What do you mean? I'm paying you money. Don't tell me I already have what I need. But it was true. We have what we need. We have it. We just have to connect with it, be it, be with it. And so the third thing, the third thing, which I think is my favorite, is that it's never been about becoming some version of yourself, becoming some, becoming something but it's been about unbecoming who the world has told you to be. It's about unlearning those rules that we talked about at the beginning. Unlearning the rules telling you to be small, to stay quiet, to not need, to be whatever. It's about unbecoming all of those things and getting back to who you actually are. See, my favorite writer and speaker, and just, just person, her name's Glennon Doyle. And she has this quote that I love so much. And this quote is that she says, to imagine the most truest, most beautiful life that you possibly can. 
Just imagine it, you guys. Like imagine the most beautiful life. And then the hard part, the key, is then to do everything in your power to get there. Everything in your power. And so for me, my truest, most beautiful life, for me, for me that meant to stop drinking. For me that meant I wanna live a life where I don't feel like I am drinking to run away from it. I don't wanna have to drink to try to forget it. I wanna live a life I wanna be there for. So I stopped drinking. And then I realized, okay, for me that means I want to be allowed to eat food. Like we need food, guys. I wanted to be allowed to be nourished, have energy. So that meant I could start eating. I could eat a chocolate chip cookie. Guys, chocolate chip cookies are so good. Yeah. Didn't you guys get some last night? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're good here. I needed all of that. And the biggest thing, I think, was just give myself permission to figure out who I was. And one of those things was to look inward at, like, my sexuality. Guys, I'm so gay. <laughs> <laughs> Give it up for people who are gay. <laughs> it's my fiance, Kaylee, everybody. <laughs> and the thing about that, just like everything else, is like I was raised to believe that that was not okay, that that was bad. And it's just so interesting because a lot of people are going to tell you a lot of things. They're gonna give you a lot of rules and they're gonna have a lot of ideas about your life. They're gonna, they're gonna see you trying to find and reach your truest, most beautiful life and they're, gonna, they're not gonna like it. But you guys, I made a commitment to myself, a commitment that I am trying so hard to follow and that is to never abandon myself again. You know what I mean by that? Never not take my own side again. And that's a process, and that's a journey, and that is what we're doing here. So thank you so much for listening to what I have to say. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Uni Project Podcast. If you guys enjoyed what you heard today, then feel free to go leave us a review anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Or if you wanted to get involved or get in touch, follow me on Instagram at JackieG.TV or check out my website for any and all information, JackieGronlin.com. All of that info is in the description box below. See you next time.